The edition is sponsored by Crux, one of the world's leading boutique asset management firms specializing in Asian, European and UK investments. We invest for the long term and our dedicated team of investment professionals have decades of fund management experience between them. Visit cruxam.com for more information. Hello, I'm William Moore, The Spectator's Features Editor, and welcome to a special Christmas episode of The Edition. This week, we are going to be looking at five subjects that dominated the pages of The Spectator this year with some of our favourite writers and journalists. First up, in this turbulent year for politics, The Spectator has kept us all in the thick of it, not only within the pages of the magazine, but also on our daily podcast, Coffee House Shots. I'm delighted to sit down with the politics team now, James Forsyth, Katie Balls and Isabel Hardman, to review the year in UK politics and what we can expect in 2022. James, we began the year with a vaccine rollout that brought Boris Johnson and the Conservatives a lot of goodwill uh, from the public. And now we end the year with number 10 in chaos, a hundred strong Tory rebellion against the government's Covid measures and a Labour lead in the polls. How did 2021 fall apart for the Prime Minister? Where did it start to go wrong, do you think? So, I mean, you're right, the vaccine rollout gave the government a a huge bounce. I I remember going to uh, the West Midlands before the mayor election there in May, and uh, as all good journalists do, asking the taxi driver who he was going to vote for. And he'd be like, oh, I've had my jab, as if that was a kind of answer to the question almost. And and I think for the government, there was... Uh, the vaccine rollout provided them with such a boon for two reasons. First of all, there, there was a sense of a kind of great national effort that there was an end in sight to all of these restrictions because people were going to get vaccinated. And then secondly, this was kind of the first big act of the British state post-Brexit and it appeared to be going quite well. I think what has now happened is we're now in a situation where restrictions are coming back. The government... People feel that, that, that you know, the vaccination programme, yes, they're trying to ramp it up now, but the UK having been, you know, first off the mark in terms of approving the, the, the Pfizer vaccine, which obviously wasn't devised or manufactured here, and, you know, handing out the kind of first non-clinical trial jab in a, in a, in a Western country, the UK was then not ahead of the pace on some of the other decisions about vaccinating um, secondary school children and the like and things like that. And so I think some of the benefits of the vaccine rollout were squandered in that way. And then number 10 has had an absolutely torrid time in the past month or so from kind of the um, Patterson scandal onwards. And I think what you saw in that Tory rebellion is a frustration among Tory MPs at the idea that after a year and a half, more than a year and a half of this, after the vast majority of the population have had two doses of vaccines, you know, we, are, we are still in a world where restrictions are necessary. And I mean, that rebellion was, as, as Charles Walker, one of, the, one, of the, one of the Tory MPs who rebelled, put it, you know, it was a kind of cry of pain in many ways. And Katie, uh, just then, James mentioned quite a few of the blunders and political scandals that have happened uh, since Owen Paterson onwards, really. Um, I mean, do you think the Conservatives can recover from this string of own goals? Is it a case of the uh, reshuffling the number 10 operation? Well, I think things can move very quickly in politics. And I know that sounds quite an obvious statement, but I do think if we're looking back at the past year, just after the local elections, I think there was lots of kind of 
breathless reporting about, you know, 10 more years of the Tories, lots of cabinet ministers predicting that quite confidently, and more specifically, 10 more years of Boris Johnson. And I think that anyone who's covered the 2017 snap election, which is um, everyone on this podcast, remembers that things do turn very quickly. And therefore, just as I think it was a bit much to suggest 10 more years of Boris a few months ago, I also wouldn't say, oh, Boris Johnson is done, um, you know, completely, and this is the end. It just, you never quite know what events outside of your in control are going to happen which are going to change the political landscape i think in terms of boris johnson and his downing street operation if we're looking at the past year one of the things that's happened is the team around boris johnson has changed quite significantly so if you go back to the vote leave exodus so when dominic cummings and others left just before christmas last year you then had dan rosenfield brought in um, someone who uh, had experience in the treasury from the civil servant side in a way, the complete opposite of someone like Dominic Cummings, someone who is probably more um, amiable and perhaps less direct, um, less political, but also um, some would say, you know, better at getting everyone around a table. So you've seen different approaches. And I actually think the problem for Boris Johnson is as we go into the new year, there's lots of people saying, oh, it's the Downing Street operation. Well, they were saying it was the Downing Street operation when it was vote leave. You've had two quite different approaches. And therefore, while there are definitely some cabinet members who are saying they need to be more political, they need to get an old hand in there, I definitely think there has been a shift, both in terms of MPs and some ministers, people saying, actually, it's not really about having a new chief of staff necessarily. If Boris Johnson wants to have a chaotic court type arrangement in Downing Street, that's what he's going to have. Um, and therefore, it's more questions about whether Boris Johnson can make that work from him than, you know, do you move this person with that person, I think. And Isabel, what about Labour? Is this Keir Starmer's moment, do you think? Yes, I think it is, actually. And I think he's got the best circumstances in which to really move Labour from being a, a party that's been troubled for, for, for years now to being a, a government in waiting. Not only has he finally had the reshuffle that he wanted and he's now got uh, good media performers, uh, good people with good track records of being scrutineers, even people who were in a Labour government back in the mists of history on his front bench. Uh, he's also got a, a, a crisis for the government, which particularly le- lends itself particularly well to his strengths as a lawyer. And uh, I think we saw a shift towards the end of this year, particularly in the most recent Prime Minister's questions, the last one before Christmas, where he stopped being quite so cautious. He's he spent most of this year sort of saying, you know, don't you think the Prime Minister needs to you know, think again about this policy? At this Prime Minister's questions, he called on Boris Johnson to consider his position, said that he was uh, the, the worst possible Prime Minister at the worst possible uh, moment for the country. And throwing away that caution, I think, is something that you you obviously have to choose your moment well to do. And I think he has chosen his moment well. But the conversation obviously then moves on to if you have a, a sort of chronic government crisis, which we may well be heading into, then the, the question is, well, why vote Labour? You might have a lot of people saying, well, I don't really want to vote for the Tories anymore. But Keir Starmer now needs to answer that question. Hmm. Well, James, so the phrase Isabel just used then was chronic crisis. Number 10 does continue in this way for the next few months. How likely do you think it is there will be a Conservative leadership contest in the next year? Or do you think the press might be jumping the gun with some of the speculation? So I think to turn this into a kind of preview of next year rather than a review of this year, I think the biggest risk to Boris Johnson is the May elections next year. 
you would have to be a very odd politician to want to take over now in the current circumstances, given everything that is going on. I think that the, the danger for Boris Johnson is bad local elections in May. Remember, I mean, we've said this ad nauseam on this podcast, but that doesn't mean it's not true. Boris Johnson's relationship with his own parliamentary party is very transactional. It's based on the idea of him being a winner. If that goes in those May local elections and you have the Tories regularly behind outside the margin of error, then I think that is when the moment of maximum vulnerability. Now, I was talking to one Boris loyalist cabinet minister after the, the rebellion on Tuesday night and they were saying to me, look, you, you've got to realise that you can't just... Converting these 99 MPs who voted against the government into 54 letters is, is, is not easy. That's like imagining going from kind of base camp on Everest to the summit. But what I think the worry I would have if I was Boris Johnson is how many of the people who propelled him to power in 2019 are now voting against him. And I think he is now left without a constituency in the party. And, you know, when Boris first came into Parliament, he was a kind of classic saloon bar Tory. I think that that relationship was strained and damaged, with that part of the party was strained and damaged by Brexit. He was then uh, propelled to a leadership, you know, backed by kind of the more libertarian Brexiteer element of the party. They are now in rebellion against him because they don't like COVID curbs. That leaves him very vulnerable in that, you know, who are the Boris Johnson backers in the Tory party? It, 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 it's difficult to see, you know. Katie and I were talking the other day about thinking back to the fall of Margaret Thatcher and all the MPs who turned up that night to tell her that she must stand in the next round of a leadership contest. When you apply that to Boris Johnson... It's hard to think who the cadre of MPs who turn up to say, you must fight on, you must fight on to win, are. And I think that is where he is vulnerable because, you know, his support has always been broad but not deep. And that the danger for him is that it's hard to see what, you know, who the bulwarks he has to steady him are if time, if we really are moving into a, into, into a very difficult period politically for the government. Katie, one of the biggest scandals of this year was, of course, uh, the moment when Matt Hancock was caught breaking his own COVID rules in a rather graphic way. Uh, The image from the summer is still so burnt into our minds that it made it onto the Spectator's Christmas cover image this year. And yet, in your piece uh, that you wrote for the Christmas issue, you say that if there were to be a leadership contest, then don't put it past Matt Hancock to run. Do you really see Matt Hancock running for Tory leader? Does he still have a political future? I mean, I don't see Matt Hancock being Tory prime minister or Tory leader, just just to be very clear. And there's also a video, you mentioned an image. Um, I think... I think that uh, what is worth pointing out here is more... And it's been reported in a few places. I mean, Matt Hancock does not believe his political frontline politics career is over I think he's quite confident or at least hopeful but I think with Matt Hancock it tends to come with some confidence that he will return at some point and therefore if you are going to end up in a Tory leadership contest you could remember lots of people enter almost to just make sure they're in contention 
when jobs are later dished out. I mean, there's plenty of people who think Matt might run. I mean, I have to say, probably, if we're going to be more serious, I think the people to look closer at would be Rishi Sunak, Liz Truss. I think they're the two front runners, And then actually Jeremy Hunt, who I think is seen as a bit of a dark horse in this, in the sense that if you think back to the last Tory leadership, the final two were Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt. Jeremy Hunt was offered the role of Defence Secretary. That was seen as a snub by um, Jeremy Hunt and his team. They expected what would be officially a great office of state um, and said no, only if it's, you know, foreign secretary, the role um, he'd been in. And they said no. But as a result of that, if you get to a situation where Downing Street gets more and more chaotic, this chronic crisis, people want, you know, almost the opposite of Boris Johnson. I can see how Rishi Sunak could pitch himself a little bit as that, as someone who I think you would trust to do your accounts in a way perhaps you wouldn't trust Boris Johnson to. Um, But you would also, I think, be able to see a way that Jeremy Hunt could say, well, I've actually had nothing to do with this. You know, I, I am not being around that table and lots of these things have been going on. But yeah, I think there's there's lots of talk in Westminster that um, Matt Hancock could also give it a go. So yeah, that, that is one to watch. And um, I would just say on that, I think that in terms of when this might happen, and James is talking about the time, it's just very hard to predict because it can actually take a very long time. And I think as, as one um, senior minister put to me, which I mentioned in, in the piece, Theresa May, she obviously lost the Tories, their majority in an election, and it took a long time to get to 48 letters. Boris Johnson won his party. Most of them do believe it was a large part of his personal brand, a majority of 80. So I think getting to the number you need, which is over 50, given the party's expanded, um, I think could take longer than people realise. Obviously, if Boris Johnson frustrates everyone, you could have it going in lots of different places. But I do think it's just worth bearing that in mind. Isabel, you said earlier that you thought this this could well be Labour's moment. Conversely, do you see a way out of this quagmire for Boris? Or, or was it very hard to see what, what uh, his strategy might be to, to move on from all these, these different crises? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think Katie's point earlier on in the podcast is so important that the common denominator in all of these problems is Boris Johnson. And he can sack staff on a daily basis and get new ones in, but he's still going to be the same person. And a lot of these crises aren't even, haven't even been crises of sort of, you know, ministers making the wrong decisions or you know the government machine not working properly you might be able to make those accusations in the case of Afghanistan for instance but one of the running rows throughout this year has been the redecoration of the Downing Street flat which is a Boris Johnson problem Dominic Raab was not the person buying the wallpaper um, and then realizing that he didn't have the money and so this is this is why I think Conservative MPs have started to get particularly upset with Boris Johnson is that they feel that a lot of their messes are actually personal ones created by the Prime Minister himself, often in his own home, which which is a real problem. Uh, talking to Boris Johnson's supporters, to, to the ones who've sort of stuck by him, even when it, it looked like he was a no-hoper, even, you know, after his first failed leadership bid and so on, they think that things are very serious, that he's probably got about three months to get things back together, that one of the things that would really help would be to bring some of those early supporters back into the tent in one way or another. Because if you look at everyone who he's, I mean, he's alienated a lot of people recently, but they include his longest standing allies who would 
previously have been prepared to go out and do some of the difficult broadcast rounds that, that ministers just disappeared from during some of the, the, the crunch points of the past few months. And so trying to, to get a Praetorian guard again, I think is a really important thing. And, and that's not actually about Downing Street personnel. That's just about uh, talking to your friends and potentially even if it's just getting them to be a bit little bit more loyal and supportive from the back benches would help a great deal because you saw the last Prime Minister's questions of the year there was only one really hostile question from a Conservative that was Tom Tugendhat who you know we've known for a long time is is not Boris Johnson's greatest fan Uh, but other MPs didn't attack the Prime Minister they just asked about their own sort of campaigns and so on but I think you need to have people who are prepared to support the Prime Minister as well and and that's one of the things that he's really lacking. Yeah well let's uh Let's end uh, this podcast with a little lightning round. Just want to go around and ask you, who is the politician we should be watching in 2022? James. Uh, Nadim Zahawi would be my uh, pick for that. I think the government has had two big successes during the pandemic. One is obviously the the furlough scheme. The other is the vaccination programme. And I think Nadim Zahawi, having been the vaccine minister when the vaccine programme was going well, that then having slightly fallen off since he left means that you know he, he he is someone who I think is a kind of dark horse contender for the for, for the Tory leadership. I think he's also in education, he's got a job that plays to his own life story, this kid who turned up in Britain unable to speak English, and then ended up founding a, a, a hugely successful company. And I I think one cabinet minister said to me at the Spectators Parliamentarian of the Year Awards, after Nadim Zahawi gave this speech, pointing this out, he said, you know, and that is why Britain is is, is the greatest country on earth. Um, and it was, it, it was slightly American, but he had a kind of story about his own story and how his own story reflected on the strengths of the country. One cabinet minister, just as they were walking out of the uh, out of the ballroom, just whispered in my ear, he's running. And they meant it as a joke, but you could see the serious point there. And I think it's also true that in education, you know, since the Michael Gove reforms, the Tory approach to education has very much been consolidation rather than anything else. And I think if he could bring back some of that energy and reforming zeal, I think that, you know, you would have people begin to kind of comment on him as an interesting politician and someone, you know, I think that this government, this government does not have a brilliant reputation for competence, to put it mildly. And so I think those people who can display themselves as competent, able ministers will reap the political rewards of that. Katie? I think Liz Truss, I mean, ultimately, she is the big winner from the reshuffle. She was the person who was promoted to a great office of state. And I think if you look at her career, she is the longest serving member of the cabinet. People often say it's Michael Gove. Well, Michael Gove had time out. Um, But I think there is a tendency in politics to, you know, praise people like Michael Gove as being very clever men and suggest people like Liz Truss are quite lightweight and too focused on Instagram. And I think what will be interesting about the next year is ultimately Liz Truss is now in a really big role. So far, I don't think has been particularly tested in that role. If you think about um, what has so far been in her intray, it's things that she's quite comfortable with, talking about strengthening ties with Australia. You know, she walked in and AUKUS was happening the, the day it happened, which, again, talking tough in China and speaking up about liberal democracies, I think that's pretty, like, safe ground for both a minister and someone who might want to be leader one day. She's been at the top of the Conservative Home Cabinet League table for a year. But ultimately, 
if we're being a little bit critical, in her role so far, so international trade, and also so far in some of the things I just mentioned in terms of foreign secretary, is things that do play quite well, is delivery departments, is trade deals, they're fairly good news, and you can see why that would work with the Tory party. I think that with doubts about what's going to happen in Ukraine and Russia coming up, and also tougher, um, you know, calls and you look for the ongoing crisis in Afghanistan and others I think the next year will probably be the point where we actually do work out you know who is right is it this trust's critics or is it actually her supporters who say that she has been um you know doubted too much in the past and Isabel who do you think is a politician we should be watching in 2022 I think it's Wes Streeting who is now the shadow health secretary he is a very interesting figure he's obviously part of this wave of grown-ups joining the Labour front bench. He is very experienced, even though he was only elected in 2015. He was president of the NUS, uh, which is somewhere where if you are a moderate uh, rather than on the hard left, you have to fight really hard. And he has really honed his political skills there. In fact, I was talking to some Labour members who say that they joined the party because they heard Wes Streeting's speeches to the NUS, which I, I thought was sort of both tragic and inspiring. But he's been brought into the Shadow Cabinet partly because of his political pedigree. He's got a, a good backstory, which we all love in Westminster. He is a very good in the Commons, which isn't always a given as well. But another reason that he's interesting is that he is an alternative power base to Angela Rayner, who has been the sort of talked up rival to uh, Sir Keir Starmer. And to have somebody else who people are talking about in terms of who could be the next Labour leader, which is something that has already happened very quickly uh, with Wes Streeting since he was promoted to Shadow Health Secretary, is helpful for Keir Starmer because it means that Angela Rayner is not the only game in town. Uh, Wes Streeting is is a much more loyal figure. He's he's also always been quite open about his ambitions. I mean, everyone knows he wants to be Labour leader, but he doesn't do it in a sort of insidious way. And I think there are really interesting parallels between the Labour and Conservative front benches where you had Liz Truss promoted to Foreign Secretary partly to create an alternative power base to Rishi Sunak. You've got Wes Streeting being promoted to a, a, a very public facing role in in shadow health in order to create a a, a, an alternative power base to Angela Rayner now I think there are some quite interesting parallels between Angela Rayner and Liz Truss as well although um, Angela Rayner unlike Liz Truss doesn't uh, have quite as many photo shoots but West Streeting is is certainly popular with with MPs whether he's popular with the changing Labour membership is is another matter. James, Katie and Isabel thank you very much. Next up While things domestically have been a little dicey, world politics was not going to be outdone. Our final departure from the EU has not put us on good terms with the continent, with Macron labelling Boris Johnson a clown. China has been the subject of many spectator covers this year, from the treatment of Hong Kong and Taiwan to soft power moves at British universities and hesitance to let anyone find out exactly what happened in Wuhan. And then there's America where the year started with an attempt by the supporters of Donald Trump to overturn the election and ends with President Joe Biden polling in the doldrums following the botched withdrawal from Afghanistan. Yes, a lot has happened this year. And to discuss it, my fellow edition host, Laura Prendergast, sat down with Jonathan Miller, Cindy Yu and Douglas Murray for the perspective on Europe, China and the United States. Jonathan, let's start with you. This, this was the first year with Britain fully out of the EU 
How do you think the continents coped with our departure? Well, I wouldn't say it's the, uh, the, the major topic of conversation in Europe. There are various, uh, the departure, to, to answer the thrust of the question, the departure has not gone well. The uh, withdrawal agreement and the associated agreements have created terrain for continuing conflict, misinterpretation, malinterpretation, and so that has not been a positive move. But I think that the the threats and the challenges facing Europe are now really far beyond the mere Brexit. And they are even actually, to some extent, beyond, you know, the future of the EU, which is another subject. It is that, you know, Europe has got Russian forces, you know, bordering Ukraine who could invade at any moment, of which, you know, Europe, for all of its talk of an army, is in no position to do anything about. We have the, uh, the Balts feeling very menaced, we have the Germans with a, a new government that lacks anything resembling the kind of uh, the bottom, may I say, of, of Merkel's regime. And in France, we're facing a presidential election, which, although it's still probable that Macron will be elected, it is a very destabilizing time. And, and of course, we have, you know, this associated uh, economic crisis arriving on another track. So it's easy to see why Europe isn't too excited about Macron's scallops, because uh, in the broad scheme of things, uh, we have much bigger things to worry about. One of the candidates running for, uh, in, in the presidential election next year is Eric Zemmour. What, what do you make of Eric Zemmour? Well, Eric Zemmour is a really smart guy, and he's been the subject of a really vicious campaign to take him down. He's a journalist, he's a... A, you know, a, a really, really good writer. He's a really clever broadcaster. And he tackles difficult subjects and he includes a lot of nuance uh, from which certain journalists, many journalists, like can pluck a sentence here and a, a sentence there. And he becomes a Nazi, a fascist, a racist, etc., etc., etc. I think his odds are... It's a, he's got a tough mountain to climb, uh, the, the presidential most likely situation at the moment is that we have a contest between President Macron and Valérie Pécresse, who is uh, the sort of a centre-right candidate, which really isn't actually a huge choice at all because they're pretty similar in that outlook. But uh, nevertheless, uh, the election season's underway in France. The country's kind of bankrupt. The virus hasn't gone away. You know, it is the season to be merry, but there's not a, a lot to be merry about in Europe at the moment. Douglas, America had a very turbulent start to the year. What's been the fallout from the January the 6th Capitol riots? Well, the fallout this year is that uh, America, as I've written in The Spectator uh, this year, America has gone even further into the bifurcation, which we've all seen and noticed in recent years. There used to be a bifurcation in the media. You had... Um, you know, left-wing media and right-wing media. You obviously had two parties standing against each other, propping each other up. But what we've entered this year is, is a whole new depth, if you like, or a new low in American life, I would say, which is that both sides now really do have their own alternative sets of facts and their own alternative set of interpretations of reality. It just, it's not even an interpretation, it's, it, it's what they believe has happened. A majority of Republicans believe that uh, Joe Biden did not win the election. 
there has been an enormous utilization by Democrats of the appalling events of January the 6th to try to smear all Republicans as sort of domestic terrorists, not just, uh, not just opponents, but um, people who are actually against the state. Donald Trump himself, whenever he reemerges, uh, continues to claim that he won the election. You have, on top of this, very uncertain foundations, a very weak president. Uh, the uh, incumbent president, President Biden, is just one obvious test. He's, he's not put in front of the media in, in a way which we in Britain, for instance, would understand as being absolutely necessary for uh, any leader. He's not made to answer any questions. He, 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 the, he's, he's not put in front of people to answer questions because uh, effectively I think people recognise, particularly his handlers, that he's, he's, he's not very good at doing it. He laughed off a question just a couple of days ago about the number of COVID deaths in the US and uh, sort of poo-pooed it. And he, he's, he's, he's not really able to fulfil his role in, in many ways. Added to that, you have uh, the what is widely perceived to have been the disastrous manner in which the superpower exited Afghanistan. You have a vice president, uh, Kamala Harris, who has the lowest uh, vice presidential opinion ratings on record. As I said recently in the, in the Spectator, I mean, just think of a competition for that uh, role. Wow. So it's a very uncertain time in America. It always is, of course, so you have to add, add that sort of caveat. But, uh, but there, there is this, this underlying problem that this, as I said at the outset, that, that this is now two different realities that exist in the country. And uh, how the country unifies or gets around that, I, I do not think anyone knows. And do you, do you get the impression that Democrats are starting to worry about Biden's presidency? Oh, yes, they certainly are. I mean, people are uh, already floating the idea of of replacing the vice president as if that would help, because apart from anything else, if Joe Biden, I mean, there's, well, here's one scenario. I mean, you can play this any way, but one scenario is Joe Biden doesn't make it through the four years of his term in office. The vice president, Kamala Harris, is expected to step up. The Democrats realise that would be a disaster for them. Donald Trump realises from his uh, lair in Mar-a-Lago that this is the perfect uh, setting for him. He steps in and runs against Harris and wins in 2024. That, that, that's one scenario. He would love to run. Trump would obviously love to run. He'd obviously love to run against a very weak candidate. Now, the Democrats won't allow that to happen. And a sign of sort of how lost the party is, is that the name that they're floating at the moment as replacing Kamala Harris as Veep is Pete Buttigieg, who, uh, I mean, um, he's currently the transportation secretary. Uh, but the idea that he can solve the Democrats' problem on this is, is I think, a nonsense. But, but yes, I mean, obviously there are these big questions that remain. Um, you know, the, 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 the main one you hear in America is the will he, won't he? Will Trump run or won't he? And all we know is that he would love to run as long as he can claim that he wins. Let's move on to China. Cindy, obviously a lot of the news that we get here about China is usually either state propaganda or Western interpretations. Can you give us a sense of what you think the mood has been like in China in the past year? It's actually very, very interesting to listen to Jonathan and Douglas. I mean, always it always is. But in particular, talking about the situation in the West this year, because the disillusionment or the, the, the decline that they are describing is not felt in the same way in China at the moment. This year, China 
a lot of Chinese people feel like China has won, as it were, has done very well this year. Um, for your ordinary Chinese, they look at the pandemic response and by which they mean China's zero COVID strategy. You know, it's hysterical because when you get one case, you lock down an entire city of about 12 million people. And, that, you know, it's arguably overkill. But at the same time, it means that the, the China, when the Chinese media talks about the death toll in other parts of the world, the or your ordinary citizen feels that they are much more protected. So in that sense, they feel like China has done COVID very well. And then when you're in Beijing, if you're part of the government, there are quite a few political wins for you this year. The Hong Kong national security law marks its first anniversary this year, and the Hong Kong protests have completely died down. It looks like as we're going into this weekend, as the, the, the Hong Kong, first Hong Kong election since the pandemic, where all pro-democracy candidates have essentially been rooted out. You have people in the West obviously agitating for uh, Olympic boycott based on the, what's happening in Xinjiang and calling it a genocide, but doesn't seem to be changing any policies domestically in China. So politically speaking, the government, and let, let's not forget as well, President Xi marks his first decade in power next year and earlier this uh, earlier this year he declared himself, essentially elevated himself to the same level of historical importance as Deng Xiaoping and Mao Zedong, the two most important people in Chinese communist history at least. And so politically China is in, believes itself in a strong state. People themselves, because of COVID, have this confirmed uh, confirmation of their nationalism. And in a lot of quarters, that is essentially hubristic. You know, you could say that leads to arrogance, that leads to a lack of understanding of where the rest of the world, certainly in the West, uh, is feeling about China, which is so completely different to what the Chinese are feeling. But it's interesting that there is that disconnect and that the kind of disillusionment and the disappointment that is happening in the Europe, the, the, the insecurity is not at the moment felt in China. And, and what about the lab leak theory? I mean, lots of people in the West are now saying that's pretty conclusive. What, what do Chinese people believe to be the truth about the origins of COVID? I don't think Chinese people would think about it in a politicised way. I think partly... That's because the situation hasn't been as dire. So in the first days of the pandemic, when you saw those awful pictures coming out of Wuhan, you know, we think that Italy was bad. Those pictures from Wuhan were, you know, even worse. There were literally nurses and doctors wearing diapers because they hadn't sat down in days. And at that moment, it looked as if the people might turn against the government. The fear, the panic, and you that, that led to, on social media, this huge outpouring of you know, really shockingly blunt grief for the whistleblower doctor, Dr. Li Wenyang. And that's the sort of stuff that doesn't normally get allowed. But since then, because the pandemic has been largely under control, life has gone back to normal, at least within China. I mean, for me, as a diaspora outside China, it's not gone back to normal for me because I haven't been to China in two years. Um, But for people inside of China, they don't feel that same anger about the pandemic. So that's that emotional thing of not really caring about where the pandemic comes from because it's not really impinging on your life now. Secondly, of course, they don't have the same kind of information that we do. We're not going to be seeing the same reporting. You know, Matt Ridley's new book, Viral, is not going to be published in China you know, all this sort of stuff. So the media discourse, the civil discourse is completely different. Uh, And so people kind of feel when they see the lab leak theory, it's probably being promoted by, I don't know, Western media, uh, by the American government, so on and so forth. And that discredits discredits the theory even more in their minds. But bearing in mind the caveats that I've mentioned, which is that the consumption of media is just completely different. I'd just like to finish by asking each for a prediction, if if that's okay. Jonathan, can you give me a prediction for France for next year? Well, France, I, I, I'd almost like to cast it bigger than France. I think the outlook really, right across the EU, France, 
uh, Germany, the major players, uh, is very unsettled. I think the outlook in the UK, from my perspective, uh, outside the UK, also looks very unsettled. Everywhere, there's a, a sort of a, a disconnect between you know voters and the politicians. There are these existential threats, economic threats, threats on the border, internal security threats, which are haplessly kind of addressed by political leaders. You have this, this virus, and at this point, who knows what to believe, but uh, as Douglas described in America, where people have completely different facts over what happened, you know, on, the, on Capitol Hill. People on the virus have, you know, the, the people, you know, there are these so-called anti-vaxxers. It's actually more nuanced than that. You have the kind of the, what are called the bedwetters, you know, who must be drowning by now. They seem so infantilized and terrorized. So against this whole backdrop back, uh, of, of really, really fundamental problems, you have a polity, you have a, a, a you know, a, 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 a democratic platforms that are very, very weak and that seem to lack a lot of legitimacy and where there's this fundamental gap between the people like the Tory rebels the other day who voted against the government and those that say, bring it on, lock us down. And we've seen in Australia, New Zealand uh, and elsewhere that there's a big constituency, people run to, na- to nanny in, in these situations, and that creates a, a fracture in society. And of all the problems I've listed, this societal fracture at the heart of politics is, 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 is the one that can prevent those others from being resolved. Douglas? American prediction for next year? I would just to try to tie it up by saying that, you know, one of the things I've observed uh, this year has been that, uh, as with viruses and pandemics in history, uh, one of the things that they do is that they sow this extra level of discord in the society, distrust. People start to distrust each other, uh, other people around them, people they see in the street. And, and this has been the case throughout history. I would say that Europe, in, in this is a terrible generalisation, but Europe in, in, in particular seems to be finding it very hard to get out of that. America, to some extent, uh, is getting out of that or has got out of that, partly because of the genius of the way in which this country was founded. It's the case that you, know, you can move to a state which better reflects your desired way of living. So if you, if you are anti-lockdown, you can move to a place like Florida if, you, if you've got the... Uh, as I say, obviously, economic resources to do so and the job opportunities, but you can move to a place where life will be of the kind you want to live. That's, that's really not possible in, in many other democracies, but I think it's a great advantage for America. America, to a great extent, is up and running again. America has the same debt issues, uh, and perhaps even worse than parts of Europe. There's this endless ongoing concern about whether America can endlessly delay uh, debt repayments and much more. But America is, is in the game, and American politicians, particularly Republicans, recognize that uh, China, as the economic, only main economic competitor to America, is in that game. And, and therefore, you know, Americans can't take the luxury that civil servants in London and others seem to want to take of spending the rest of their natural lives working from their gardens. Uh, you know, there is a desire to get up and going again, and uh, to that extent, as I say, the, the, uh, the game of the 21st century is on. And Cindy, prediction for China for next year? 
Um, <laughs> very hard question, Lara. <laughs> Invade Taiwan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. It did look a bit ropey, didn't it, in October? <laughs> Things seem to have calmed down a little bit now, but who knows? Um, I think one prediction for next year will be that we'll definitely see China not backing down in terms of its rhetoric. So as we recall, the Global Times editor, uh, Hu Xijing, which is, uh, you know, Global Times is this um, very nationalistic tabloid paper in China, has just stepped down, prompting some speculation that China is winding down its wolf warrior diplomacy. I think that's unlikely. I think he's going to be replaced by someone who's very, very similar. Um, and the reason I think that is because next October is when Xi Jinping formalizes his second decade in power. And God knows how much longer he's going to go on for. And bear in mind that this is a sort of informal term limit that... Chinese leaders uh, since um, Chairman Mao really had had for of, of about a decade. So Xi Jinping's got a very politically important year next year, which has all sorts of implications. One for rhetoric is not they're not going to back down on saying China's very strong, China stood up, all this sort of stuff. Secondly, it means that they're not going to risk anything have going wrong. So COVID, for example, the borders being opened, is not going to happen. A lot of people I speak to in the field don't expect to go to China until 2023. So, you know, that's my definite prediction for next year is that none of us will be going to China and China is going to be continuing to feel that it's, it's standing up. Thank you, Lara. And of course, thank you, Jonathan, Cindy and Douglas. Now, I think we all wish that we could leave this next subject alone in the early half of the year. But sadly not. Covid is, if anything, tenacious. With so much misinformation out there, the one important thing to have is good data, which is why we built the Spectator's COVID Data Hub, and I am joined by three people who've spent an ungodly amount of time going through all those figures. The Spectator editor, Fraser Nelson, Michael Simmons, who put the Data Hub together and is making his podcast debut, and our economics editor, Kate Andrews. Fraser, at the beginning of the year, we hoped that, thanks to the vaccine rollout, the COVID crisis would be over by now. Sadly, that is not the case. How do you think the government has handled COVID in 2021? Um, badly at first, and then for a while. Right up until November, it looked as if we were going to be the only country in Europe that was going to keep our head. It looked as if we were keeping calm, carrying on, and looking at the data. When I say that, I mean looking at what was actually happening, as opposed to models saying what might happen. That changed very, very quickly. Boris Johnson lost his head. Sajid Javid seems to have also um, completely lost his previous opposition to vaccine passports. And we've ended up taking several steps backwards and basically responding to the Omicron threat as if we've learned absolutely none of the lessons of the previous um, lockdowns. So we're now into a position where we're causing economic damage. Now, by the way, I'm not saying Omicron will not be a threat. We still don't know. But the question is, what do you do with uncertainty? If in doubt, do you really introduce legislation like vaccine passports that will help nobody? I suppose we ought to be grateful for a couple of things. Firstly, we're having this podcast under legal conditions. We're not having to pretend we're working from home like we did half the time during the other lockdown. Um, then we can go to, I can actually go to a proper church service for Christmas. I don't have to go to an illegal underground mass that I did during lockdown. So I should be relatively grateful that our overlords are allowing us some degree of freedom of association. But still, we're some far away from what I think... Um, the government could have done with the tools it has now assembled and with the experience it has garnered. Well, Kate, uh, as Fraser as mentioned, we're, we're recording this podcast just days after Boris Johnson has, has announced his uh, move to Plan B. What are you, your views on the move? Do you think that these restrictions are the right approach? Or do you think, as Fraser just said, that we now have more 
tools to approach uh, the oh, new the threat. Way, well, can I just before quick answers that, can I say in case anybody, any from the law enforcement community is listening, we are all sitting here surrounded by alcohol. Yeah. Therefore, it's actually a party. Therefore, we're all I mean, within, I, I, I we're all within the guidance yeah. here because the guidance say that we can work. We must work from home. However, we can go to have a party. So we're um, basically um, having lots of alcohol. Looks here. like a serious yes. party pret salad, Fraser. Yes. No, cheers, Kate. Cheers. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> will you answer my question now, please? <laughs> Happily, will. Um, but drink up too. The circumstances through which Plan B was rushed in are very suspect. And the evidence that they've done it on is even more suspect, i.e. We, we really haven't seen any. As Fraser mentions there, there's just no evidence, frankly, anywhere that vaccine po- passports make any meaningful difference. Scotland is case in point ushered in vaccine passports, and this made no meaningful difference to their caseload uh, and, and the increase there. And the principle that we've given up by doing this, that, you know, you have to now prove your health status in order to access parts of public life, is a terrifying one. And I don't think anybody meaningfully believes that they're going to stop at big nightclubs and and mass events, especially if, if the winter ends up looking bleak. What Plan B has ensured, however, is that businesses uh, and the economy are going to have another horrendous Christmas season. Um, UK Hospitality says that this week, uh, when the podcast is coming out, is the most important week for profits for the industries that they represent. They make 40% of their profits between Halloween and New Year's Eve, and this week is the most crucial. If the government officials, if Boris Johnson had been thinking about the economy at all, they would have at least waited a week so not as to not to frankly damn these poor, especially small businesses, uh, to a second year of whittling profits. Now, I suppose the government would say, well, we didn't have a week to wait, but that's where I, I go back to the evidence, and I'm sure Michael can pick up on this too with all the data charts he makes. We, we haven't seen the graphs yet anyway. With COVID, there's always a yet. Things could change, showing that they really needed to usher this in as fast as they did. Well, yes, I would like to ask you, Michael, um, regarding evidence then. So Michael works on The Spectator's amazing COVID data hub, which we launched last summer. And, and you spend your, your days sifting through the information. Do you think that's given you a unique perspective on the pandemic? And how do you view the Omicron variant based on the data that we currently have available? Well, I think it's, it's still quite a, a mixed picture with Omicron, because on the one hand, you know, we've already seen that this is like super transmissible. On the day we're recording this, the UK has recorded its highest ever positive number of COVID tests. So we know it's more transmissible. It looks like it doubles every two days, which is way faster than a Delta variant was um, infecting people. But what we weren't so sure about was the severity of Omicron. Um, And early data from South Africa seemed to suggest that maybe it was a less severe disease or that prior immunity from infection or vaccination was making the outcomes less severe. Um, I think the key question that we don't yet have the answer to is what is the ratio going to be between transmissibility and um, severity? Because there's a really important point that basically for Omicron to be not terrible news, we need it to be more less severe than it is more transmissible so that they sort of cancel each other out. Because if it's like so, so transmissible and only a bit less severe, then we could still see 
pressure on the NHS, though it's important to say that the NHS still has way, way, way less um, COVID patients than it did in last winter's peak. The funny thing is the government has got an internal estimate of how less severe it is, although it isn't publishing it. They think it's, um, roughly speaking, 25% less severe, with a confidence range between 0 and 50. They think it's quite plausible, as Boris Johnson himself said the other day, that it's every bit as potent as Delta, but the best-case scenario is it's half as it's half as strong. But they don't think, for example, some people in South Africa say it's 75% uh, less severe, 80% less severe. We will know in about a week or so, one of the things that Michael's doing in the Data Hub is having a daily update from South Africa. So that's where to keep an eye on. You can look at the Gauteng province, you can look at South Africa as a whole, you can look at the area around Pretoria. You can see some very important questions. First of all, will the cases actually peak in South Africa? If so, when? Secondly, what's the relationship between cases and hospitalizations? You can see that every day in the Data Hub. Right now, I think from memory, we're looking at 50% of the cases are at fifty percent of, of their peak in South Africa, but the hospitalizations are closer to sixteen percent, and the deaths are only six percent. It's going to take quite some time for deaths to catch up. Typically, it takes twenty-one days, so we're going to have quite a wait before the Omicron surge, which happened probably about to the end of November in South Africa, translates into deaths. That will happen towards the end of this month. That is why I think there's still a lot of uncertainty. If you're looking for hard data, you can find it in the ground zero of South Africa. But it's going to be quite some time before we can get our hands on that hard data. But you can check if you're so inclined every day on the Spectator Data Hub. And so, Michael, as someone who does look through this all every day and you know, a lot of concern is being reported in, in the press, as the days go on, do you find more to be hopeful about? Or actually, do you, you find more to, to worry about? Or does it just depend on which part of the data you're looking at? It really depends on, as you say, which part of the data you're looking at. I do find myself a new piece of data or a new study comes out and I think, oh, this is good news. And then you see like the case numbers shooting up and you think, oh, maybe it's not so good news. Um, I think on the whole, given you know how, how covered Britain is with both vaccination and um, antibodies, so we're, we're leading Europe in the booster rollout, 95% of adults in England and Scotland um, are testing positive for antibodies, which should give some protection. Um, so I don't feel as bleak as I did last winter. And I do think there is more and more good news coming out. Like, for instance, today um, we saw a preprint study from the University of Hong Kong uh, that was going to the, speaking to the question of not just is Omicron more transmissible, but why might it be more transmissible? Um, and they did some tests in the lab and they said that in the, the bronchus, which is a slightly higher part of your airways, Omicron replicated itself 70 times faster than the Delta variant did. But in the lungs, it was doing it 10 times slower. So that might suggest why it's more transmissible and could also explain why it's possibly less severe. So if we get more data that kind of confirms that, uh, then Omicron might not be as bad as it seems. It also explains, Michael, why in your data hub, when you, one of the great things about the data hub is it zeroes down not just hospitalizations in South Africa, but who is on oxygen, who is on ventilation, who is in intensive care. Those numbers are very, very small. 
Now, if what Michael has just said is true, that the that the virus doesn't really go into your lungs in the way the previous one did, then that could really be a game changer. It could mean that you're not going to get people basically wheezing themselves to death as you got throughout the first variant. And South African doctors say this quite a lot, that if you, their hospitals just look and sound completely different than they did the last time this wave came. They're not quite sure why, but it's studies like these which say, yes, it's transmissible, but it doesn't really get into your lungs in the same way. They help explain. And this does, um, I'll give the worst case scenario, perhaps Michael can give a best case scenario. The worst case scenario is that it transmits four or five times faster and that we will end up with hospitals, if, if not just as full, but fuller than they were in January. By the time the government works out it is this bad, it's run out of things to do, of levers to pull. Because if it pulls a lever now, it will take two weeks for that lever to have any real effect in the data figures. So in a way, you could argue that Boris has been too liberal now. He hasn't locked us down. These vaccine passports are just ineffectual. But he should have slammed the emergency brake and then waited for two or three weeks to see. Because whatever he does at the end of this month, it will probably be too late. That's a worst case scenario. Michael, give us a better one. Um, well, I would say that uh, probably a best case scenario is uh, that Omicron keeps keeps increasing at the rate it's increasing, but that would mean that we would potentially get a, a sharper and shorter peak potentially in sort of mid-January time. And the key ratio I was talking about earlier between hospitalizations um, and cases, back in uh, January, that was about 9%, and it's now down to 2%. So even our best case scenario uh, that Omicron is less severe, that would drop even further. And that would mean that in this short peak, that the NHS would see a short increase of pressure that it would hopefully be able to cope with. And then the numbers would start to fall again quite quickly as the unvaccinated or previously uninfected people were found by Omicron. And then our natural immunity coverage increased even further. And hopefully by the end of January, February, we would start to see our way out of this wave. Uh, just to go to this subject of vaccine passports, which has been mentioned a few times in this conversation, and this is a question both for Kate and Fraser, who I know have consistently held the line against vaccine passports uh, in the magazine. Oh, and Michael Gove, in his interview in this Christmas issue, he defended his support for strict COVID restrictions by quoting Winston Churchill, uh, who regarded some of the domestic measures that he had to enact as in the highest degree odious. So in other words, we may not like it, but in times of emergency, some individual sacrifices do need to be made. And I wonder what, what the two of you think of that argument. Um, well, I agree with the principle of it. The question is, what are those restrictions actually doing? So, you know, if, if the NHS does look like it's about to be overwhelmed, if we have to get cases down, then, you know, I, I think Fraser and myself, I'll let Fraser speak for himself, but I've certainly understood through many times, even months throughout the two years we've now been de- dealing with this virus, that, that a certain level, sometimes quite harsh restrictions are needed. The problem with vaccine passports and Plan B is that they haven't presented any of that evidence. And I think the government has just become uh, too dependent, frankly, on these severe levers that they can pull that have huge implication for all our lives. And, you know, I think a lot of our listeners will, will hopefully resonate with, with my sense that it is outrageous for any politician, especially the power-hungry lever-pulling ones, to suggest that we haven't been making sacrifices. I mean, people have, a lot of people have, have lost the better part of two years of their life to subsequent lockdowns and social distancing, being unable to meet new people, having to be very cautious. There's been huge sacrifice. And I think it's perfectly reasonable now. And frankly, it's a wonderful thing 
that the Data Hub has enabled us to do, especially in recent months, is just to give people the tools to ask questions about why these restrictions are coming in. I think a lot of sensible people can be swayed if the situation gets really bad, that restrictions that actually work might be needed. But there has been a lot of confusion with the emergency language coming out of the government. And as Michael pointed out, you know, at the moment, COVID patients occupy 5% of hospital beds in the NHS. Compared to the 30% they occupied back in January, we're in a very different place. And if the NHS is saying, we are overflowing, we need to shut down, and frankly, there have been a lot of calls from NHS officials for more restrictions, it is reasonable to say, is that because of COVID? Or is that because every year you have a winter crisis and it's it's hard this year? There's no doubt about it that poor NHS doctors and nurses and staff have, have had to work tirelessly throughout this thing. But, you know, may, maybe the issue isn't necessarily COVID numbers now, but the system itself. It's a legitimate question to ask. I mean, I like to ask it. I know some people out there are certainly thinking it. Um, and um, it's great that the Data Hub has just enabled us to, to ask say, questions to Michael Gover or whoever mm. else is insistent that we need restrictions they're not showing evidence for. And Fraser, do you agree? And and now that COVID passes have been introduced, something which the government has ex- explicitly ruled out in the past, are you worried about the possibility of further, perhaps even harsher or more authoritarian measures? Yes, that's exactly what I'm worried about. On their own, these measures are kind of, they'll be damaging for business, but they establish a very dangerous precedent that we, for the first time in this country, are not free to go where we please if we're law-abiding citizens. For the first time in this country, the state can ask us to prove our identity, and worse than that, ask us to give details of our health status. I worry that this will be the first part of a slippery slope. There is a massive kind of um, digital ID industry which has been itching to get its claws into government to change the relationship between the government and the individual. Uh, right now, we can go where we want. The government's job is to you know, run public services. But what we do and what we get up to fundamentally is not the government's concern. The government now has got the technological tools to observe us, to decide who can go where and under what circumstances, to transfer our rights into privileges that can be conferred or suspended at any point of its choosing. Now, we these powers were introduced in an emergency. And the question is, did they have to be introduced? I don't think they did. And I don't think they're going to be let go very quickly. And the, you look how quickly vaccine passports have been introduced. We're speaking here not even 24 hours after Parliament voted for them. And already the apparatus is springing straight into action. I was asking my Alexa a few days ago about vaccine passports. It turned out my Alexa had been successfully programmed to tell me that um, vaccine passports were compulsory and that I'd, I'd better get one. Um, before the vote. Before the vote, Yeah. And it's funny, I was talking to a friend of mine in government saying that, you know, the civil service can take two or three months to do something when you demand of them. But here they are doing things two or three days in advance with technology that even ministers didn't know existed. They didn't know you could program Alexa to propagate whatever the government says. So I'm very concerned about the liberal nature of this government. I think it's going to be a theme of next year, the rise of illiberal conservatism. And I'm still trying to um, come to terms with the fact that it's been introduced by a self-styled liberal conservative, Boris Johnson. Well, speaking of next year, let's end with very quick predictions. I know perhaps it's foolish to make predictions about COVID because so much can surprise us, but we're going to do it anyway. 
Will we still be talking about COVID this time next year? I I suspect we will, but I don't know what the top line will be. I couldn't predict where the virus will go. It always surprises us. But if we're not talking about the virus itself, and hopefully things have improved, we will be talking about all the terrible consequences that the virus and lockdowns created, from schooling to mental health to other non-COVID physical health conditions. And I suspect that will be a huge topic of next year's podcast if it isn't the virus itself. Michael, what do you think? Well, similar to Kate, um, I don't think we'll be talking about COVID next year, but I do think we'll be talking a lot about the NHS next winter um, because it will be dealing with the after effects of the lockdowns and shutting down the NHS to roll out the booster programme. Um, so I think we'll be talking about another NHS winter crisis, but it won't be one caused by COVID. And Fraser? We could be talking about another virus. I mean, remember right now, we've got... Don't say that. No, but I don't don't necessarily mean there's going to be another pandemic. Merry Christmas, everybody. But, you know, but we have always been swimming in a... We have always been swimming in a sea of viruses. That's what human life... Ever since we crawled out of the cave, we've been doing battle with these viruses. In the last 10 years, we got this, this technology now to track them as they go along and to give a running commentary about which particular virus is spreading where. Now, we are going through a sort of crisis of awareness, if you like, where we can now see what we didn't see before and shining a torch in this viral process, plus social media, those two things have come together to create a kind of era of viral panic. COVID might go, but the era of viral panic, I think, will not. Fraser, Kate and Michael, thank you very much. Next, to choose our penultimate segment, we looked back at the most read articles of the year and looked for the subject that appeared the most – and the royal family won in a landslide. It's been a big year for them. To break down this year's biggest royal moments, last week Lara and I sat down with The Spectator's deputy editor, Freddie Gray, and Patrick Jefferson, former private secretary to HRH, the Princess of Wales. Freddie, we've been looking back at some of the most read articles of 2021, and it's notable that a large number of them are stories concerning the royal family. Do you think it's been a particularly juicy year for royal stories, or was just this normal... Yeah, I think I feel quite guilty in a way because uh, Meghan is uh, traffic rich, I think it's fair to say. Every time we do a piece about her and, you know, I don't think we've been unfair on her, but quite often she doesn't come out very well from these pieces. Uh, They do a lot of traffic. There's a lot of interest in her. And I think she has become the story. And in in an extraordinary way, that's an achievement on her part. She is a global media phenomenon and I think her sort of shamelessness and her willingness to always do what the media finds appalling uh, has made her part of that global media phenomenon so she's a she's a big deal in media terms. And Patrick Megxit or Sussexit as I think they're now meant to call it was obviously one of the biggest stories of the year and it actually feels like it's quite a long time ago but it was this year. Do, do you think this royal divide is going to heal or is it going to simmer or get even hotter? But I don't see it healing anytime soon. Funny enough, I mean, rather like, like Freddie, I've been surprised at her longevity and her success in media terms, which I'm sure is one way by which she measures her own achievement. The problem is that once you are established on a track of being different, being rebellious, being highly competitive, and also thinking that you are on the moral high ground, then there is no scope for reconciliation. Both sides, I think, are now thoroughly dug in. There are so many vested interests, contrary sides, that I think it is going to be the big divide that is one of the great threats facing the future of the monarchy. Well, uh, Freddie, I mean, you mentioned that Meghan's stories are particularly 
traffic rich. I'm sure that the Sussexes would say that the the media just has this uh, tabloidish obsession with Meghan and with Harry. I mean, do you think there's any truth to that? Do do the public and press have uh, this particular obsession with her that goes further than the rest of the royal family? Well, I mean, obviously there's a public interest in the monarchy and there's a tabloid interest in the monarchy. But Meghan's own hatred of that tabloid interest is in itself tabloid. She cultivates this idea, and Harry does it too, of, you know, this awful right-wing vulgar press that is obsessively interested in them. Um, But of course, as we've seen from the recent court case against the Mail on Sunday, she cultivated that interest. She wants that interest. And so she's as guilty of the tabloidization of the royal family as as anyone else. In other royal news, uh, Patrick, of course, we lost Prince Philip this year back in April. How do you think his absence has affected the House of Windsor? I think it's had a profound effect. I mean, obviously, there was a, a moment of sympathy for the family and a coming together. But I think what we have seen is the, the final disappearance of what we used to think of as mainstream royal virtues, steadfastness, authenticity. I mean, it used to drive people crazy that he would say things that, that, that were highly provocative or insensitive. But it kind of earned him a special respect because he was unspinnable. He was himself. And you can't say that about many of the other members of the family. They have invested so heavily in spin and news management. The idea of trying to spin Prince Philip or trying to package him or tell him what to say or brief against other members of the family so that he would have his voice heard is crazy. He threw down a gauntlet, for example, to Australia saying, if the monarchy doesn't work for you, get rid of it. That was 30 years ago, and there's still a realm. So his willingness to speak his mind, whether or not you agreed with him, was very refreshing compared to the the over-rehearsed, homogenized, and uh, calculating communications we tend to get out of the out of the royal family today. Freddie, do you agree? I mean, when people talk about spin in regards to royals, they, they're often talking about how uh, Harry and Meghan like to control their image. But isn't the same true of uh, many, many other members of the royal family, perhaps particularly the, the younger generations? I think, yeah, I, I agree with Patrick on this. I, I think we see eye to eye on this, that the, the monarchy should just get out of the spin game. And spin in itself, PR, isn't compatible with the idea of monarchy, because what you're trying to do is 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 appeal to an egalitarian democratic mob in a way and so if you're always trying to spin yourself as acceptable and nice and you know somebody that that the people must love then they're eventually going to hate you because that's how uh, the media works that's how pr works I, I think it's a very unhealthy relationship and actually i think it goes way beyond the younger generation of windsors i think they've been doing it for far too long and i think that um you know, Clarence House should just get out of this game. I think the monarchy survives as an institution if it does boring events like ribbon cutting uh, in in boring places, which Meghan had to do a bit of, and she got quite fed up with very quickly. It's not glamour. It's not tabloid. It's it's supposedly an institution. Patrick, how about William and Kate? How how's their year been? Well, actually, to to pick up from what Freddie was just saying, I. Uh, was very impressed by William's podcast or his audio event, as I think they called it, for Apple Fitness, 
where he spoke with, with real authenticity about, for example, his trauma of dealing as an ambulance helicopter pilot with victims of, of road accidents and his uh, very, I thought, unspun comments about the charity Centrepoint. It's well worth a listen, actually. And I think that it does leave a glimmer of hope for the Windsors. I think it is fanciful to think that Clarence House is going to kick the spin habit. It's addicted to it and has been for the last 30 years. That's not going to change. And when the Prince of Wales ascends the throne, I pray that he will not take his spin doctors with him. I fear that he will. William has also engaged spin doctors. In fact, I think Gus Carter earlier this year in The Spectator praised him for hiring shrewd press officers from the world of politics. That's poison to the royal family. And I'm surprised that Gus didn't see it. And there's this temptation with limitless resources to hire people who tell you what you want to hear is a, is a habit that, that will kill them. As Freddie says, if they can't kick it, the trouble is, Prince William aside, with this latest podcast, I see no sign of any willingness to kick it at all. I think, I think they're going to want more of it. Well, on the subject of perhaps threats then to the, to the royal family, Patrick, there was quite a lot of stress in this office, mostly from me, uh, when the Queen's health scares were reported uh, in November. She's obviously by far the most popular royal. I mean, she's more popular even among people who don't think of themselves as, as royalists. So to what extent do you think the popularity of the monarchy is tied to her personally? And do you think when we do have a King Charles, we'll see more calls to slim down the monarchy or even abolish it entirely? Well, to answer in reverse, I think that slimming down or streamlining the monarchy is suicidal. Uh, once you have half a dozen of them, tops up there on the balcony, we're all going to turn away because that's, you know, show's over. And it, it actually betrays a, an incredibly selfish attitude that actually we, we only need a couple of us up here, we can do the job. Whereas, again, to go back to what Freddie was saying, what the monarchy depends on, its lifeblood, is the low-key humdrum meeting the people things. It's those thousands of little lifetime memories. I met, could be some minor member of the family, but they turned up, they came to our agricultural show, they opened our drop-in centre, they showed an interest, they looked like they cared about us, the ordinary people, the ordinary taxpayers. This idea that you have a slimline monarchy, just an elite up there, it's a, it reminds me of trying to grab the last deck chairs on the Titanic. Hmm. Fred, what do you think about that? I mean, don't you think even the most diehard royalist out there, such as myself, has to at some point ask, what is the point of Prince Edward? <laughs> or Prince Andrew. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, what's the point, what's, what's, what's the point of any of these people, right? I mean, there's, there's no real point to any of these people. These people aren't superhuman through birth. But, you know, I think just to go back to the, the Queen point, you know, the, the reason the Queen's been a great success is because she hasn't talked. She's shut up. Um, and I know you're not supposed to say words like shut up about the Queen, but, but you know, she has. She's kept her mouth shut. And, and Dennis Thatcher, I think, said something like, if you're silent, uh, they think you're stupid. And if you talk, they know you're stupid. And I think that's quite a good lesson that the monarchy should learn. Yeah, um, I, I want my royal stupid. You want your royal stupid. <laughs> I want but, them stupid, yeah. But silent absolutely. as well, presumably, yeah. on, on you know, political stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's another thing here, though, Will, too, with, with the Queen. that She became Queen when she was young, glamorous, and the whole nation could get behind her 
and uh, indeed a whole generation grew up with her, um, the greatest generation, and they are now almost all gone. The people who come after her don't have that benefit. Charles will be old, bald, white man when he becomes a king. William will be an old, bald, white man. George will be an old, bald, white man. For the future of the dynasty, given the obsession with youth that our culture has, it's not a very glamorous, glossy lineup to put in the, in the showroom window, is it? And it means, I think, there's going to be a very different dynamic in terms of where the monarchy draws its support from, assuming it gets some. Patrick, just looking ahead to next year, we have obviously the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, um, which hopefully she'll be reaching. Do you think they'll kind of use that as a moment of reconciliation between the various feuding parts of the royal family? Uh, I'm sure there will be some nice photographs of the family together being a family. Uh, Any absentees, therefore, will be doubly noticeable. I've heard that Prince Andrew is not going to be involved very much. Um, It's would strike me as a surprise if Harry and Meghan were involved. So we may take pleasure from the, uh, the, the ones who do turn up um, and put on a, a good show of uh, unity. But the interest, the focus, I'm afraid, will be on the absentees and the reasons for their absence. And Freddie, any predictions for 2022 for the royal family? I think that um, by the time we reach the end of 2022, there will not be a second edition of the Archwell podcast. <laughs> I'm happy to be proven wrong on that, and I may well be wrong, but I don't think they've got, the, got it in them. I don't think Spotify gave them enough money for, for so a second episode. So it's currently Spotify have spent 30 million on one episode of a podcast. Yeah, although I think we will have, we will have this Netflix fly-on-the-wall documentary that's being talked about following them around and that will be worse than any reality tv <laughs> you've ever seen um patrick any predictions for next year well i do predict that prince harry's tell-all will be a bestseller and it may be accompanied on the bestsellers list by the sequel to the bench which don't forget was also a bestseller so i'm afraid that, that if you are not a fan of the sussex show and um donald trump has said he's not a fan for example Uh, then you're going to be disappointed because we are going to hear a lot more about them. The big question is going to be whether that casts the rest of the institution in a better or worse light. My hope is it'll cast them in a better light, one that they've earned through obvious signs of hard work, sacrifice and traditional royal virtue. And I suppose the good news in terms of uh, the Sussexes is that finding them a bit appalling is, is good media value, as we've, as we've proved on the Spectator website this year. Freddie and Patrick, thank you very much indeed. And finally, our producer has given me an early Christmas present. The Church of England is one of my favourite subjects to talk about, and we've run many features on it in the Spectator this year. I can't tell you how excited I am to talk about the Church and its future with four amazing priests – Marcus Walker, Daniel French, Nicholas Cranfield, and Steve Morris, who join me now. I'd like to start the question for for all of you. Uh, Obviously, The Spectator has run uh, this year plenty of articles about the Church of England and and the current state of it and so on. But I think it'll be interesting to ask from the horse's mouth, so to speak, of, of, of several men of the cloth, how have you found it being a priest in 2021? I mean, perhaps, um, Nicholas, if we could start with you and move around. Thank you. I think one of the concerns I would still want to 
have going into next year is what appears to be, publicly at least, a lack of support from both the hierarchy and the centre and a lack of voice. And it may just be unfortunate that when, at least my perception, that when the archbishops have spoken, they've often spoken in areas that are either of little concern or have spoken at levels that don't seem to respond to public imagination. I would like to have heard the archbishops talk about how we could, as a generous nation-state, provide for countries that have less wealth than ourselves for COVID vaccination. I would have wanted to hear much more from the archbishops about the foreign aid budget being cut. I would like to have heard from the archbishops on the subject of how they see a disintegrating Anglican communion when one province is willing to allow for homosexuality to be banned and made subject to potential, at least, capital punishment. Uh, To wait a week before disowning that seems to me to be asking for trouble. And I think on the ground in the parish, we felt very little support from the centre. Well, that's some quite harsh words there, perhaps, or at least stern words from from Nicholas there. Uh, Marcus, you you were described by Archbishops Welby and Cottrell this year as one of the church's rascally voices for raising concerns about the future of the parish network. Are you still feeling rascally? Oh, I think I'm always feeling rascally. (laughs) Um, And I think there's a certain degree to which the what started as a few disparate voices and in fact a few disparate voices quite often writing in the spectator although not only has grown into quite a movement now the concerns that so many people in parishes lay and ordained have felt about how they're being treated about how parish ministry is viewed about where monies that are raised mostly by parishes in parishes are being spent has blossomed. I was going to say blown up, but actually I think blossomed is a better word, into a movement that's got at least 150 people elected to synod at the last, at the synod elections that happened in, in October. And I think there's a certain degree to which we've stopped being rascally, which was a term that I think was used in the hope that we were small and going away, and have now actually become, at best, a real voice that could be heard and a movement that could be harnessed by the centre if they wanted to do that, and they, in their words, they say they do, or at worst, a real thorn in their side if the sort of trajectories that have been seen continue being followed. But there is, I would would like a, a sort of another note of confidence for all that so many people have seen the church institutionally as having let us, let the nation down a bit, particularly over the over COVID, there's been a real flowering of people being interested in the big questions. And I suppose there's an obvious reason for that. Death has been an omnipresent reality over the last two years and where before it's been something that we as a society have hidden from now it's something we really have had to look in the face and Christianity has been talking about death for 2,000 years more to the point it's been talking about life uh, eternal life for two uh, for 2,000 years but it's but it's something people are interested again we're in the we're in the conversation again and that is positive Steve, would you agree with that? Do you think, have you found that in the last, in 2021, or maybe even the last 18 months during the pandemic, that 
you've seen more interest in what Marcus has just called the big questions. And do you see that as a as a, a possibility for for growth, perhaps in twenty twenty two? Well, I think that you know almost all of my ministry has been in very unglamorous suburban parishes right on the edge of of London and it's a very particular kind of ministry there I and mean, it's really difficult to get people interested you know to come to church and 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 that, it's like the tree the end of the tree is withering away ever so slightly you know we're getting whittled away over there I think what Covid has done is two things one is I'm not sure about the big questions but it's really opened us up to the sense of creation you know like nature and all that kind of stuff basically what what we found is there's been a renewed love of, of, of nature, of gardens, of animals, of birds, and all the stuff that we couldn't hear before or took no notice of. People have paused and, and become, I think, more aware of that. I mean, the second thing is this, uh, it's about to hit us, you know, um, is, is the mental health crisis in this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially amongst older people and younger people in their 20s. It is an <laughs> epidemic of self-harm, of depression and anxiety, and it's in the clergy as well. We are all suffering. We, a lot of clergy suffer in silence. They've been, I think they've been heroic, frankly, regular clergy on the ground. But that's the thing, and we haven't dealt with it yet, and it's going to go on for years, and we're going to have to find a way of doing it. So I suppose the church, you know, I know all the big things the church should be interested in. I know that. But on the ground, I think that mental health emergency is pressing and we need to think of ways in which we can help people. And Marcus, you're quite a prolific tweeter, I think it's it's fair to say. And on that platform, you're very keen on history and politics. Uh, I wonder what your thoughts are about, um, well, beyond social media, do you think the church has a role to play in modern day politics? Or do you think it should, it should stay out of such matters as much as possible? Well, I'd be an arch hypocrite if I were to say that the clergy should stay out of anything political. So I shan't. Um, I think actually that there's, there's quite an interplay of a few of, of a few things that I certainly picked up on that are very similar to Daniel's. So actually, the interesting thing is that the on that I would say our online presence was more welcomed by people who are older and not able to come into church and were afraid, particularly during the third lockdown. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very concerned for their health, mm-hmm. much more than it was by younger people. Whereas younger people, I found we had quite a number starting to come between the lockdowns. Mm. And when I asked, they said things like, I'm living and sleeping and working and eating in the same room. And when I go to church, I'm suddenly somewhere beautiful, somewhere big with live music. And I used to think I didn't need that. Mm. I need that now. So I really echo what Daniel said, that actually we've, I think a lot of the way, if you look at a lot of the online programming, it's designed at attracting young people when actually that's not what they need. That isn't to say that online services aren't really useful for a substantial block of people, and particularly for people who are stuck at home. Now, when it comes to this, this then is echoed, I think, in an awful lot of the way that we use social media full stop and the church uses social media. Um, the Church of England put out, put out a, it, it keeps trying to do something, it's currently doing a digital, it's currently got a digital charter that it encourages everybody uh, to sign up to. And this is the latest iteration of a similar kind of thing. It, it reads a little bit like a sex manual written by nuns. It's clearly written from a place of fear and from a, if you have to engage, 
Um, avoid doing this, avoid doing that. Definitely don't do that. Definitely don't do the other. Like Daniel with, with his podcast, I find very, very regular people set, drop into my DMs, slide into the DMs, the phrase is, the, I think, for a different subject. But yes, pop in saying, I'm really interested in this, or I've never really thought about Christianity before. Um, how do you engage with your faith when you're, you know, when you're a Tory, in my case? And, and actually, I've spent a heck of a lot of my time pinging back responses. And then quite often people turn up and sometimes they don't live in London and they turn up when they're visiting and sometimes they do live in London. Some have started being in the congregation and it's a curious thing because, you know, the whole way in which the church thinks about social media is basically don't, definitely don't have private conversations, definitely don't say anything controversial, you know, tweet as if you're an MP, you know, delighted to be at hashtag something school with the excellent hashtag headmaster who has done so much for hashtag diversity and hashtag climate change, and then a picture of you shaking hands with a child. When that's stultifying and killing, actually engaging in the thing, I mean, fundamentally engaging the things that actually interest you will always sound interesting. And engaging, in my case, that's politics and history and religion and God and a whole range of things like that engage on that and then people who are interested in the things you're interested in will think you might actually be able to talk sense. Steve, what are your thoughts on the online services that have been held through the, the, the several lockdowns we've now had in this country? I mean, were you, did you do them yourself? How did you, how did you find them? And did you, did you think that it was a way of reaching new audiences, perhaps? Oh, no, I know. I absolutely agree with with Marcus and Daniel. I mean, I had to, there was such a lack of support. We were we were in, we were in such a panic to begin with, and we we're all trying to make this stuff work on our own. It was pretty. I found it pretty stressful, really. And I do agree. It was the older folk came. I mean, my my numbers, as it were, in church went up a bit. If you add it, if I added the people who were there and the people who were there in the in person. But I think you know the thing is, and it's really interesting what what people have been saying is. My question is, why would working class people come to the Church of England and come to a Church of England church? Because I think, you know, it isn't just engaging with people in terms of their technology. It's engaging with people in terms of their lives and having something in common with them to be able to kind of engage with them. And, and it, it always strikes me. I mean, I, I had never thought about class all the way through my business career as an entrepreneur, all the way through university. And I have been aware of it more in the church than not. I mean, I think all I'm, what I'm trying to say is that there's a number of fronts on which we need to meet people. And there are, there are millions of working class people out there with very deep questions, very spiritual natures, who are interested in God and interested in church. And I sometimes wonder if we just don't seem like we value them. We very rarely see them at the front. We don't see people reading with working class accents. We, we go to kind of events and, and, and almost no one's been to a comprehensive. There's nothing wrong with I mean, I love my, my fellow clergy. They are brilliant. But I just want there to be a more diverse kind of palette of people. And I think it would be tremendously helpful if over the next few years we kind of think about that massive group of people. I don't really, I hate the phrase white van man. I loathe everything about it. I find it deeply, deeply patronising and I wish it had never been invented. Like my father was a driver. He was not a white van man. He was one of the best people you'd ever meet, fantastic, hadn't even got an O-level, you know? And I just think the church needs to engage with people like that. And that's going to take some thinking about. Uh, Nicholas, you were about to say... uh... I was only going to try to pick a bit of that. I mean, obviously, Steve, that's a much wider concern than either coping with COVID and the pandemic and 
being rushed into attempting virtual services and the like. Although I would share your concerns that we are not as widely diverse as a church community should be in a land that is so uh, diversely educated and diversely backgrounded. But certainly my immediate response to trying to put stuff together, trying to film and then release a film in advance for Sundays and then moving over to live stream services when we were allowed to worship together was that, as you say, young people were not interested as much as older people. People who were at home who might not normally be able to come actually did benefit, and I, I don't doubt that was important for them. We asked our youth group, and they said, no, please not, no, not on a Friday night after we've been in school or trying to learn on Zoom. That's just too much. A lot of younger couples whom I might have anticipated either being part of a discussion group or even preparing for marriage and the like, you know, if they've been working all day on Zoom calls, then the idea they're going to have to sit and listen to the vicar or work with the vicar on another Zoom call in the evening. So whilst there are benefits to the technology, and most of us have now, well, I've certainly moved on from quill pens and and using uh, hieroglyphs, but only just managed to find out where the 21st century is taking us. But (laughs) it, it doesn't really replace the human contact. And I can gain more from just randomly finding somebody who's got five minutes to talk to me in the street or at the back of church than I'm likely to if I sit down and put something carefully together for an hour and then hope people might join in in a broadcast or some kind of Zoom call. Very quickly, I'd like to just go around everyone and to tell me what is your, as a Christmas question, a final Christmas question, what's your favourite carol and why? Uh, Perhaps Daniel, if you'd like to start us. Oh, yeah, In the Bleak Midwinter. I think it just captures so much of the core of the message for me. And I, I find the tune haunting. As I say, I've, I've had it at, at funerals. I've heard it at funerals, and it's, it's just a beautiful one for a, a time of, of, of some sorrow as well as hope, I think. But uh, Steve, what about you? I, but I love O Holy Night. I love when we sing that because I, I know it's not... I mean, I love the, the, the melody of it. I think it's Ding Dong Merrily on High with those fabulous, ridiculous rhymes in it, which I, 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 I just cannot stop myself laughing from the front whenever they come up. It reminds me of a kind of Dawn French thing. So that really makes me laugh and smile. So I, I, might, I might go for that one, I think. Marcus? I'm going to be really basic. Um, oh, come all ye faithful. Oh, yeah, and yeah. it's really, it's because of that one verse that you can only sing one day of the year. And suddenly you've got word of the Father. You know, oh, it's, it's, it's just wonderful. Yea, Lord, we greet thee born this happy morning. And it suddenly feels all good. And I refuse to sing that verse any other day of the year, even if it's printed on the order of service, because it just there's such a moment to it. Excellent. And Nicholas? I'm always excited by the assurance of hope that's offered in what is now often regarded as politically inappropriate, but God rest ye merry gentlemen, because it is actually the birth of Christ Jesus on the day that's the crucial thing. And I share with Marcus the willingness only to sing that last hymn verse on that one day. Excellent. Well, Marcus, Daniel, Nicholas and Steve, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Thank you. And Merry Christmas. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, why not pick up our Christmas triple issue in stores now? And if you subscribe to The Spectator magazine this Christmas, you can get the next 12 issues in print and online for just £12. Not only that, but you'll also receive a bottle of Tattinger champagne worth £42 to see you through the new year. Join the party today at spectator.co.uk slash celebrate. I've been William Moore. Thank you for listening and have a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. 
Thank you.